Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. One of the things that Americans do better than just about anybody that I can imagine, because we have so many opportunities, really, is we do, we do outdoor dining really well, right? We are good at outdoor dining. That's kind of something that we excel at. Um, and so as I think about that and as we're going to talk about an outdoor dining experience today with Jesus, I want us to just make a, a quick commercial for next Sunday night at 6 p.m. is our annual cross lane picnic. It's going to be a little different in that we normally would have you bring stuff to us and we would eat what you've prepared, but we're going to, we're going to cater everything to keep everybody safe so that um, you know everybody feels like they can come and not, not get the COVID, as my, my pastor calls it, the COVID. We don't want to get the COVID. And uh, so we'll, we'll cater everything. The staff is going to glove up and serve you and, and make sure that you stay safe that way. But it is a great time. It's always a good time when we get together for the picnic. The weather's usually really good. And we've got plenty of shade out back. So um, it's, it always amazes me how many of you show up for that. And it's fun for me to just see you interact and get to know new people. I know some of you have made friends with people that you didn't know all because you came to the picnic. So um, I strongly encourage you to, to come, and if you're going to come, we need you to sign up. Because we are catering, we need to know how much food to buy. So if you can give us some idea of how many people would be coming along with you, that would be great. You can sign up at the Welcome Center. I think you can sign up on the app. Um, but we, if you just let us know you're coming, that would be great, greatly appreciated. Um, let's go back to outdoor dining a little bit. I don't know how you do it. I know some of you have really sweet backyards with, um, you know, you can do the barbecue thing. I know that some of you have pools, and it would be kind of cool to, to grill and, and then hang out by the pool with, when you're entertaining people and the kids can swim and the, you know, the parents can all be there and just enjoy each other. That's one way we do it. Some of you, maybe your thing is you are all about the picnic. You figured out how to make food portable and make it delicious, and you can go to some setting in nature and um, you know, have a picnic kind of thing. That's maybe your, your style. Um, some of you I know are Colts fans and have tickets to the Colts and you, you kind of escape a little bit early on Sundays and you go over, I don't know if you have ever, ever, have ever tailgated, but that looks like a lot of fun to me. I've only done that a time or two, but that, that's pretty fun, I think, and that's, that's one of the ways that we do outdoor dining. But the way Dee Dee and I have figured out to do outdoor dining is by camping. We, we like to camp, and so... Um, We've learned how to eat pretty well when we go camping. I'm going to tell you, we don't starve to death, that's for sure. And when you think about an outdoor dinner, there are really four essentials to a great outdoor dinner. The first of those is you have to have a great host. And this is my host. This is Dee Dee, and she takes great care of me. She makes sure that I have everything I need to have a great experience. She always thinks about those things that I'm not thinking about. And she, Dee Dee's just awesome. Dee Dee's awesome. Um, then you have to have a great setting. Every outdoor dinner has to have a great setting. I showed you a picture a moment ago of us at Spring Mill Park. This picture here was taken at Chain of Lakes State Park up just west of Fort Wayne. We like to go up there and uh, put our kayaks in the water and paddle around a little bit, and, and that's my favorite little site up there at Chain of Lakes. We, we've had that site several times. And so the setting, I, I have just, I've, <laughs> I've made life decisions on that plot of ground. I have prayed for you on that lot of plot of ground. I have strategized church stuff on that little piece of ground right there. That is a special, special place to me. And I like to share that with friends of mine. I've taken several up. We took the staff up there uh, probably two or three years ago to enjoy that. So the setting is really important. And then you need great people. And you've heard me talk many times about my friend Michael. This is Michael and his wife Rochelle, and uh, that's their daughter Michaela. And that particular picture is taken when we go to fall break. We always, we always camp at fall break, and we go to Starve Hollow down around uh, Brownstown, Valonia area, Jackson County, Indiana. And um, you want to be in stitches, and you want to laugh until your, your cheeks hurt. You just need to spend some time around that guy because he is the funniest person I know and he's probably my best friend in the world and, and uh, just love that family very, very much. So then the last thing that you need for a great outdoor setting is you need food. You need good food. And um, this particular meal is one of my all-time favorite meals prepared op over an open fire at a campsite. We had just gotten there. The campground was pretty empty that weekend. 
And uh, Dee Dee and I got everything set up, and then I started cooking. And we cooked that steak over the open grill. We took those sweet potatoes and wrapped them in foil and put them in the coals and baked those sweet potatoes for about an hour and a half in, in hot coals. And that meal was delicious. Now, it may not look like it to you. You're like, what in the world is that in the foreground? That is a sweet potato with cinnamon, brown sugar. Um, what else do I put on those? Uh, marshmallows. Those are, those are big giant marshmallows that I've kind of spread out, and they're, that's all melting into this ooey goodness that just makes, makes me yummy in my tummy. That's what that is. So the four essential elements to a great outdoor dinner. And, and, and when you think about it, <laughs> you start seeing all that. I'm just curious. Anybody hungry yet? You ready for lunch? You ready to go? You're like, Brett, come on, let's go. Get this thing over with so we can go eat. Today, I want to take a look at an outdoor dinner that Jesus experienced with his disciples. And Jesus has just sent the disciples out on what really amounts to a mission trip. He's just sent them away for a season to go out and talk about him and talk about the kingdom. And, and he's, you know, commissioned them to go talk to people. And so now they've come back from their mission trip. Now, mission trips are not foreign to us at Cross Lane. Tracy leads our mission trips here. And he does a phenomenal job. If you ever get a chance, how many of you have been on a mission trip with Tracy? Let me see your hands. Look at that. Look at that. Am I, am I lying to you when I say he does a great job with mission trips? He makes sure that you have everything you need. He's, he's, he's not only got the regular plan, but he's got a backup plan. Um, Tracy's really good at that kind of stuff. I went with him to Thailand, and I had a ball in Thailand with Tracy and our team, and you, you, you know, just a wonderful thing. Ryan does that with the kids, takes them, puts them in a van, takes them on a mission trip. They went to Ireland about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, had a great experience. They get in vans and go do, you know, like local domestic mission trips where they serve people and fix up houses and things like that. We, we are not um, foreign to the idea of mission trips, but here's what I can tell you about a mission trip. When you come back from a mission trip, there are two things that are going on. First of all, you're really excited about everything you've experienced and you want to tell people about it because you've seen things that you never thought you'd see before. You've had experiences. You've met people that you, you know, are new and fun for you and you want to tell people about these people that you've met. You want to tell people what you did, how you taught, uh, things that happened. So you're really excited about it. But the other part of it is you're worn out. Uh, a lot of times when we take these trips, you're crossing international timelines and and uh, you come back, the, the time change can, can kind of make you a little bit wonky. And so travel can be exhausting, and the time change can get to you. And, and all that excitement, you know, just you get also, you just, you don't sleep a lot because you're, you're having fun with people. And I think that that is some of what the disciples are having go on with them when they come back from this mission trip with Jesus. And so we read these words in Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Because that's how you feel when you come back from a mission trip. You want to talk about it. Verse 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. So what you understand about the disciples and Jesus is people are everywhere. They, they, it's relentless. Every time they look up, there are people that want their attention. There are people that are coming to them. And Jesus and the disciples are so busy with all of these people that they just don't have time to eat. They're, they're, they're hungry. And so uh, it's, it's becoming a problem. The verse says, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus says, look, we got to get you guys out of here. I want to get you some food. I want to get you rested up. You've had a, you've had a big experience. Let's, let's take care of you a little bit. And so Jesus plans this rest and relaxation trip. Now, they're in Galilee. They're going to get in a boat. They're going to travel. They're going to basically cut a corner and go to the north, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to land on that northeast side. And they're going to end up in this remote area, and they're just going to, the plan is they're going to grill and chill right? They're going to eat something and they're going to hang out together and just kind of catch their breath and let their bodies rest a little bit. And Jesus is going to feed them, which is interesting to me. Um, and, and as Jesus, you know, takes care of them, their job is to relax. Now, I'll just ask you this question. How would you like to go on a camping rest and relaxation trip with Jesus? I mean, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine how cool that would be to be able to hang out around a fire with Jesus? To let him just kind of take care of you and, and, and look after you and shepherd you and, and love you while you, you know, you've just had this great experience and you've done it for him and now he's going to basically kind of say thank you and he's just going to take care of you a little bit. I just think that would be fantastic. And so this is the meal that we will be exploring today as Jesus gets ready to have this dinner with his disciples. And you say, okay, Brett, what does a camping trip have to do with my life? What does Jesus hanging out with disciples around a fire, you know, where he's going to fix some food for them, what does that have to do with my life? Well, here's what I would tell you. All four gospel accounts have this story in it. That's not common. Like, usually you'll see one one of the authors put a story in here. Maybe another one will share that same story. Very seldom do you see all four accounts have the same story in it. And, it, and that's because different perspectives, you know, if you went to a ball game, if two people went to a ball game and they were going to retell that story, some people would put certain things into their story that the other one would leave out because they didn't see it as, 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 as important. Um, that's not the case with this story. All four gospel writers saw this story as significant, so significant that they included it in their gospel accounts. And so today, I'm going to be in and out of all four of those gospel accounts because I think that that's, how, that's going to give us the best full view of what happens. So the structure of our, of our time together this morning are the four elements of a good outdoor dinner. Good host, good setting, good people, good food. You ready? Part one, the host. For the most part, uh, for most of us in our life, there's somebody who plays the gatherer, right? There's somebody in your life that plays the host. Uh, when I say the host, there's somebody that you probably can conjure up in your mind that you think to yourself, you know, I like being around them. I like the way they take care of groups. I like, you know, they're hospitable. They just have this gift of hospitality. Um, they're the one that brings everybody together. They're the party planner. They're the ones that have the great ideas for you know, let's, let's, um, let's, let's play this game or let's, let's uh, have this food. And so in our story today, the host is Jesus, Mark chapter 6, verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus and the disciples have hopped in a boat they're going to head across the lake, and there are some people that day who want to be with Jesus so badly that they literally run on the shore all the way around the lakeside, and they beat them to the spot, okay? Now, just a minute ago, we read that many of those, many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran to get ahead of them. So how many are we talking about? Are we talking about 10 or 20? Or 50 people? <laughs> We're talking about somewhere between five and 10,000 people. Okay? A big crowd. Big crowd. And they're running ahead of Jesus. Now, can you imagine if you're Jesus and the disciples, um, what would be going through your mind if you're so tired, you've gone through this experience, you're really looking forward to a, a chance to be away from everybody else and all the other responsibilities and, you know, I mean, think about it like a vacation. You're getting ready to go on a vacation, and all of a sudden you look up and you realize, wait a minute, look at all those people on the shoreline waiting on us to land this boat on the shore, and the minute we get out of the boat, we're going to get bombarded by all these people. They look up and they see all these people waiting on them. They can't, you know, these people just can't wait for them to land the boat. Now, if I'm Jesus... And I think we're all thankful that I'm not Jesus. But if I were Jesus, I look up and I see all these people, I start rowing the boat in the other direction, right? Fast as I can. I'm getting away from all those people because we need some time to ourselves. You know, we give, 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 give all the time, and you need some time to yourself. I, I just think that I would be rowing in reverse. But now we are going to find out the heart that Jesus has for people. Because when you're the host, you sometimes get unexpected surprises, and sometimes those unexpected surprises show up in unexpected and uninvited guests. And a really good host, when, it, when they are surprised by unexpected guests, roll out the red carpet 
And they do this magnificent job of making sure that those people feel like they are not uninvited and are not unexpected. And so how does Jesus respond to this huge crowd? Mark 6, 34, the first, the first part of the verse. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So this giant crowd is going to interrupt Jesus and the disciples in their plans. And instead of getting frustrated, like I would be, Instead of getting upset, like I probably would, instead of rolling my eyes and thinking to myself, man, when am I going to get a break? Jesus doesn't do any of that. We're told that Jesus has compassion on this big crowd. But we're not told that he just had compassion. We're given the reason for the compassion, and we find that in the second part of the verse, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus had compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, we're in the 21st century, and we do not spend an awful lot of time thinking about sheep and shepherds, right? Like, that's just not our thing. I I doubt you even know a shepherd. When I was at my first youth ministry, there was a guy there, there was a couple named Dave and Mary Mary. Um, How'd you like to have that name? Mary Mary. But they were great people, and they raised sheep. And I, I used to take the youth group out there, and we would, you know, he would talk to them about sheep and do object lessons, and it was awesome. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking about sheep and the problems that are going on. But, but uh, you know, in the ancient world, sheep and shepherds were everywhere. I mean, that, that's just one of the things that you did. So why would Jesus have compassion on a group of people because they were like sheep without a shepherd? What would a shepherd provide to his flock in the, first, in, the, in the first century? One of the things that he would provide is a shepherd leads the flock. The shepherd leads the flock. Sheep are not super smart, and they don't know where to go. Um, you know, when you, they have to be watered, they have to have good pasture, they have to have all that stuff, and they don't know where those things are. And in ancient Israel, um, there weren't just rolling pastures everywhere. There, there wasn't fresh water everywhere, right? Like you had to know where that stuff was. And so the sheep needed someone to lead them to those places so that they could survive, especially in the dry season. There were only a few specific places where you could find that kind of stuff. And uh, the sheep were dependent on the shepherd to get them where they needed to go. And so they were the guide. The shepherd was the guide, and and they would take them to places that would help them to live. So the shepherd would lead and guide their flock. Second thing the shepherd would do, the shepherd knew the flock, and the flock knew the shepherd. He had a relationship with those sheep. The shepherd knew every sheep's name. If if you were a shepherd and you had a 100 sheep in your fold, you had given every one of those sheep a name. And you would call it by name, the same way that you have, you know, named your children and you relate to your children. This shepherd looked at these sheep with such love and care, and he had his whole life oriented to taking care of this flock. He would name them and would call them by name, and they would respond to him. In fact, I've heard it said that, that, uh, you know, different flocks would come into large bodies of water. A shepherd would lead them in, you know, from maybe from the east, another would come in from the north, and another from the southwest. But as many flocks as would come in and they would water their sheep, when a shepherd got ready to take his flock away from that, he would stand up and he would begin to call his sheep and he would start to walk and the sheep would begin to follow. His sheep would know his voice and would follow him while the other sheep all stayed there with their shepherd continuing to eat or or drink or whatever was the case. And so a shepherd leads his sheep, and a shepherd knows his sheep. It's just, a, it's just, you know, it's a part of what it is to be a shepherd. You're going to lead, and you're going to know your sheep. Third thing is, he protects his sheep. This is important. You're, you're talking about living in a time when there are wild bears. Um, you know, there are lions, there are jackals, there are wild dogs. And so a shepherd would carry certain implements with him to make sure that he could ward those kinds of things off. You know, when you read in the New in the uh, The Psalms, David wrote the 23rd Psalm, and in the second part of verse 4, it says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, here's what I would tell you. A shepherd had two things. He had a rod and he had a staff. And he would use the rod to 
to ward off as a weapon, he would use that to beat animals away from his sheep. He would throw it like a spear sometimes. He was very good at using that particular implement to protect his flock. He would use the staff. You've heard of the shepherd's crook. He would use that many times to support a sheep when it was going over a crevice. He would hook it up under the belly sometimes if they were jumping over a creek or something to help the sheep along. And so the shepherd protects his sheep, and that's one of the things that Jesus did. And then finally, the shepherd cares for the flock. Sheep get sick. They fall and they injure themselves. They hurt their legs. Um, you have to be careful with sheep. Dave Mary taught me this, the, the flies, especially um, insects, and, but specifically flies, can be problems in their noses and in their, mouth, in their eyes. And um, you know, it's kind of gross, the kind of things that I could tell you, but just suffice it to say that if there's not a shepherd there to take care of the sheep, the sheep can get in pretty bad shape pretty quick because they, don't, they can't take care of themselves. They need somebody to take care of them. And so a shepherd leads, protects, cares for, and knows his sheep. And Jesus looks at this crowd that has run ahead to beat them to the shoreline because they want to be with him. And it, the Bible says that he has compassion. He sees them as sheep without a leader. They don't have anybody to take care of them. They're aimless. They're wandering. They have nobody to lead them, nobody to protect them. They are vulnerable, and they're weak. More than that, they're hurting. They're wounded. They're in pain. And I just wonder if some of the words that I just used to describe those sheep and to describe those people aren't words that would be used to describe you about now. Have you had a rough 2020? Has it been a rough year for you? Has this been a, a tough ordeal for you to go through? Do you find yourself at a place where you just would really say, if you were totally honest, Brett, it, the truth is I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I, I just, I, I'm tired. I'm exasperated. I want all this to be over. I wonder if that describes your last week or maybe your last month or even this whole Year. And you hear that phrase, they're like sheep without a shepherd, and you go, you know what, that's been my experience lately, that's kind of how I feel. So we know how Jesus feels about this crowd. He has compassion on them, but what's he going to do? And they, they are there for him, and how is he going to respond when he had his heart set on just spending a little time with his disciples? How is he going to pivot now, and how is he going to change things? How does he respond now that they are in this place that he thought was going to be empty? And it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 11, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So Jesus steps into the role of shepherd for these people. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he steps in and begins to care for them, and he's going to guide them. Now, I think that's what, that's what Jesus wants to be for his people. He wants to be a shepherd. He called himself the good shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. One of the roles that Jesus wants to fill for those of us that, that follow him is, is that of shepherd. He wants to lead us. He wants to care for us. He wants to guide us. And I just wonder if you've ever thought about Jesus in that way. Do you wake up in the morning and you think, Jesus, you, you are my shepherd. And I'm, I'm going to listen for your voice and I'm going to do what you say, and I'm going to go where you lead me because you know how to lead me to the place of still water. You know how to lead me to the place that will give me rest for my soul. Have you ever given him the authority to lead you? Have you given him permission to lead you and guide you in the decisions that you make about your life? Or do you just make your decisions without any prayer, without any thought really about it? You're just like, this is what I want and I'm going to do it. Or do you retreat and say, Lord, lead me in this. I'm, I'm thinking about spending this much money on this thing. Is that really what you want me to do? I'm thinking about asking her out. Is that really what you want me to do? I'm thinking about taking this job. Is that really what you would lead me to do? What do you want me to do? Jesus, be, be my shepherd. And I just wonder if you realize that you can bring your wounds and your hurts and your pains to Jesus. That he wouldn't judge you or dismiss you or think less of you. Instead, he would bind up those wounds. That he would be kind. That his heart would be 
welled up with compassion for you and what you go through and how you feel. Jesus wants to be a shepherd to his people. And we're talking about memorable outdoor meals, and we've said that you have to have a great host, but the, the setting is important as well. So let's talk about the setting of this outdoor meal with Jesus. We said that he's traveled across the sea to the northeast side, and they're going to land near the, the town of Bethsaida. They're not going to actually land at Bethsaida, but they're going to be out kind of in a remote area. The closest town would have been Bethsaida. But there's something important to know about this area of Israel. It had a reputation. This was zealot country. And you hear that and you're like, okay, Brett, <laughs> what in the world is a zealot? Um, let me take you back to the map. You see the city of Gamla there to the east. Uh, it's not far from Bethsaida. There was a guy from Gamla who was known as Judah. They called him Judah of Gamla, also called him Judah of Galilee. He is not found in your Bible, but he is known as a historic figure. And around this time, he lived around the time of Jesus. And so this picture is a picture of what Gamla would look like today. And, and there's a couple of humps there that you can see. The reason they call Gamla Gamla is because that means camel. And so that, you know, there's, you, you know, you can figure out why they would call it that. Judah was a revolutionary. He was the son of a revolutionary. His, his sons would be revolutionaries. And he was uh, very, very dialed into a revolution against Rome. The, Rome, the, the zealots hated Romans. They, they resented the idea that, that Rome um, occupied Israel. They did not want Rome in Israel. They didn't like seeing Roman soldiers on the streets. They didn't like paying Roman taxes. They didn't like any part of what, what Rome did in Israel. And so they hated the fortress that overlooked the temple. When they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would offer their sacrifices, the, the fortress, I think it's the fortress of Antonia was there, and it was a constant reminder that Rome is your daddy, right? Like, we own you. And the Israelites didn't like it. And guys like Judah had plans to make that go away. And so a couple of decades after our story today, I think about three decades actually, there is a revolt in Israel led by the zealots, and they kick the Romans out. They are successful. They get the Romans out. And they experienced initial success, and they got their country back, and they were free and independent <laughs> until General Vespasian showed up. Does he just not look like a guy that would, you wouldn't want to mess with, right? That, that picture's kind of chilling to me. Uh, eventually, he would become known as Emperor Vespasian, and he shows up with Roman legions, and he goes straight to Gamla, and he lays siege to the city. And here's a portion of the city wall. You can see where they had, have punctured that wall. That Many uh, archaeologists and scholars believe that that is the exact entry point of the Romans into the city of Gamla when they laid siege to it. And that that was the fall. That's where the fall of Gamla took place. They broke through by hurling these things that they call nuclei, these, these big rocks. They take a catapult and they would hurl these at the wall. And those things are pretty big. And when one of those would hit the wall, it would just disintegrate the wall. And that's what they used to eventually break through the city wall. Vespasian and the Romans leveled Gamla, destroyed Jerusalem, and left the Israel in ruins. The whole revolt and zealot movement had dire, dire consequences for Israel. So back to the outdoor meal. And they're in zealot territory. And there are zealots in the crowd when Jesus shows up. These zealots are in the crowd, these people of like mind who are of a mind to drive these Romans out of their countryside. There are people who are sympathetic to that movement, and the movement is beginning to pick up steam. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, I don't know if I believe all this, Brett. I mean, I mean seriously, really, what do, they, what do they want with Jesus? Well, Check this out from the Gospel of John. This is verse uh, 15 of chapter 6. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. Right? That's, their, that's what they want to do with Jesus. They want to make him a king by force. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus is going to retreat for a little bit. 
See, they wanted to make him a, a military ruler. They want to make him uh, their king. They don't want a good shepherd. They want a military shepherd. This is going to be good for us in helping us get rid of Rome. And this guy's going to be the one that leads it. Now, the second part of this verse, this part about the mountain, I want you to just hang on to that. Put that in your pocket for a minute, okay? Because we're going to come back. That's going to come into play in a minute when we think about Jesus. This zealot movement is in the crowd, and they're listening to Jesus. And they aren't actually listening to what Jesus taught and they aren't really interested in who Jesus is. They're only interested in what Jesus can do for them. That's all they care about. They have a predefined idea of who Jesus is and what role he will play in their life, which is something that I think we all have a tendency to do. Based on what's going on in our life, based on what's happened to us, based on what we're thinking, we predecide many times the kind of role that Jesus is going to play in our life. And some of us, when we look at certain teachings of Jesus, we say, well, that must be outdated because that certainly doesn't apply to me because I'm not doing that. Jesus said that? I don't believe that. I'm not doing that. That, that doesn't apply to me. That's got to be for somebody else. And if you want to do that, you go right ahead, but I'm not doing that. Because in order for me to embrace that, I'm going to have to make some changes in my life, and I don't want to make any changes in my life. And the question then comes, is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Is Jesus really the shepherd? Is he the one who's leading you? Are you really an obedient sheep? And I realize that in our day and age, that term gets used in a very derogatory way. I understand that. But I am a sheep to Jesus, my shepherd. And I don't back away from that. And you can say any kind of nasty, hateful thing you want to say, but that's what I am and that's what I want to be. I want to be a sheep that listens to my shepherd's voice and goes where he leads me. So yes, we are sheep. Sometimes we think, you know what, if I obey Jesus, he'll provide certain things for me. If I obey Jesus, then he will provide a job or he'll give me the relationship I want or you know, he'll, he'll bring about the cure for whatever it is that's hurting me. You know, we need a house. Maybe if I obey Jesus, he'll give us a better house. And then when Jesus doesn't do that, our faith starts to crumble. Because it's based on this predecision that we made about Jesus that isn't really even accurate. Some of us have predecided that, that certain things we did in the past, Jesus could never overcome. And he could never look at us in such a way that he would love us. That he can't use us because of some stupid thing we did in our past. We predecide who Jesus is, how big or small his grace is toward us. We oftentimes predecide those kind of things. Some of us have decided that Jesus didn't accept those kinds of people, and that leads us to not accept those kinds of people. You know, that we, we think that Jesus was against somebody. Jesus wasn't against anybody, Jesus loved everybody. This is what the zealots did. They predecided what Jesus was and what kind of role he could play in their lives. And I think we do the same thing. So what do we learn about who Jesus really is from the setting of this story? Well, here's what I can tell you. As you give your Bible a thorough reading, you soon realize that Jesus didn't come to be a pawn in somebody else's movement. Jesus came to start his own movement. He, he didn't come to fill in a gap somewhere, and he didn't come to play some bit role for somebody else. Jesus steps onto the scene of history ready to make a big move and do some big things and start a big movement. And at Cross Lane, we don't follow Jesus so that we can get Jesus where we're going. We follow Jesus to get where he's going. And the zealots come along, and they're basically interested in getting Jesus you know, they're going to pretend to follow him, but they really, they're trying to direct him where they want to go. And a great outdoor meal needs a great host, needs a great setting, and it needs great people. You need, great people can make a good meal. Jesus' original plan here was to head across the lake with just the disciples. They were going to relax, and this crowd shows up. What happens with his disciples as Jesus is teaching and healing, you look at the people in this outdoor meal, Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. 
and it's already getting late, send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, I don't think that the disciples are being rude here. I actually think that they're trying to be hospitable. I actually think that they're trying to actually look out for these people. You know, I don't think the idea here is that they have an attitude of, hey, this is our party, and what are they doing here? We need to get rid of them. I don't really think that's what's going on. Um, I I think they're in the middle of nowhere. They realize that it's getting late in the day. And if they don't act soon, they're going to get caught out in the dark. There's no food. There's no lodging. They're in a remote place. And I think the disciples are just thinking, hey, we need to get them to town because it's not going to be safe after dark. We need to get them in where they can get something to eat. They can get some rest. They can get lodging. It's a, it's a reasonable, hospitable request on their part, I think. But then in verse 16, Jesus says this, they do not need to go away. <laughs> you give them something to eat. You feed them. Now, they've already figured out they can't do that. They don't have enough food. There's a mob there. They know they don't have enough food. They've come up with five loaves and and two fishes. That's probably not even really enough to feed the 12 of them. And they're probably thinking to themselves, you know what, Jesus, this isn't going to work. No, no, don't send them away. You feed them. Well, Jesus, that's impossible. We, We can't do that. Now, here's what's going on. Jesus wants to do something in and through the disciples that in and of their own resources they cannot do for themselves. The same thing is true for you and me. He desires to do something in us and through us that we do not have the resources to pull off on our own. You say, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, let's just consider this. Let's take something like character, you know, the character that, that Christ wants to develop in each of us. Let's just think about the kind of character that Jesus wants to develop. Here are some phrases from Scripture that describe the kind of character that Jesus wants from us. There's a place in Matthew where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. How are you doing with that on your own? How are you doing? Do not worry about your life. I have really good friends, and it seems like all I ever talk to them about is, Would you stop worrying? You're not supposed to worry. I know, Brett. I know, you tell me that all the time, stop worrying, but I can't help it. He wants the kind of character in you where you do not worry about your future, but that's something that in and of ourselves we have a difficult time with. We worry about our kids, we worry about our job, we worry about upcoming elections, we worry about our health, we worry about what's going to happen next week. We worry about all kinds of things. Jesus says, I don't want you worrying. I know, but I can't help it. How about another one? But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. (laughs) How you doing with that? Huh? You got that kind of character on your own? Is that something that just gets produced in you on your own? Yeah, I pray for my I pray for my enemies all the time, Brett. I just love my enemies. Do you? Really? Come on. You need Jesus for that. That's not something that's happening inside of you. That's not something that just just wells up in you on its own. No, you need Jesus for that. How about that bully at school? You pray for your bully at school, that person at work that just steamrolls everybody else that nobody can stand because they're obnoxious and arrogant and I can't stand them. How often do you pray for them? How often are you kind to them? Everybody knows that adultery is wrong, right? This is what Jesus said. If you even look at somebody lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. What? How you doing? Men, how we doing on that? In this age of the internet and live streaming and, and binge watching all these things and how many images get portrayed and and how you doing on this whole idea of not catching yourself in some lustful moment where you're thinking things that you shouldn't think? And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to do those things. But, but you know what? On our own, without Jesus, we are prone to those kinds of things. What Jesus desires to do in and through you, you do not have by yourself the capacity to be able to do that. And the same thing was true of the disciples. They held this bread and their fish and, and they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, there's no way. We don't have the resources for this. And then Jesus says this to them. Bring them here to me. 
Bring them here to me. Bring your inadequate fish. Bring your inadequate selves to me and watch me work. And Jesus transforms the bread and fish into this memorable meal that nobody will ever forget, and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. And the disciples are the ones that are going out handing out this food, and they can't believe what they're seeing. I mean, they're, they're participating in this miracle. I would think that you'd have to be overwhelmed. You say, well, Brett, exactly how does this work? I mean, I'm supposed to bring myself to Jesus, and he will transform me? Because I came to church last week, and it's been a week, and I don't really feel all that transformed. I don't really see much of a change in me from last week to this week. Let me show you something that Jesus said that I think will be helpful and bring some clarity. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think Jesus is saying you do not have the resources on your own to produce in you the things that I want to produce in you. The key word is to remain, to abide in, to stay connected to the vine. Sometimes Jesus does these indescribable transformations. I've seen them. I've seen somebody that was a rebel rouser, filthy mouth, filthy life, filthy attitude, filthy everything. And they give their life to Jesus and everything changes overnight. They quit smoking, quit drinking, quit whatever stuff they had going on. They are changed. And you look at them and you're like, that is a miracle. I would have never thought that that person would do that kind of a 180. Look at that. That's amazing. But here's what I, my, my main experience has been in life. That's not how it happens for most of us. That's not generally how someone's life is transformed. Certainly not how my life has been transformed. I look at where I am today. I look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and I see that my life has transformed over those years. I see where things that used to be really important to me aren't nearly as important to me, and things that I wasn't even thinking about 20 years ago, these are the things that are on my mind because I've spent more time with Jesus, and I've tried to figure out, Jesus, what's important to you because I want that to be important for me. And all of a sudden you look up and you're like, you know what, I've been transformed, but I don't remember it happening. He's producing fruit in me that wasn't there before. Jesus wants to transform us, but in order for that to happen, we have to choose to live a connected life. And when we do that, that's when we begin to see the fruit and we begin to see the character change. Jesus says, bring yourself to me. I'll equip you. I'll change you. I'll make you to be whatever it is that I need you to be. I'll give you all the tools to do what I'm calling you to do. Jesus will do that. So the four elements, the host, the setting, the people, let's talk about the food for a minute. The food is the most important part of any outdoor meal. So in this particular meal, there's bread. And it's something that we need to see about the bread in this story. There's a powerful symbolism in the bread, and we get the clue about this from a little random detail that John places in his story. And it's probable that you, when you were, if you were to read this, you would read right by what I'm about to show you. Um, this is really kind of cool. If you've got your Bible, you may want to make a note somewhere. In John chapter 6, verse 4, we read this little sentence. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? I mean, that's just, thank you, John, for including random facts. Thank you for letting us know that the Passover festival was near. No. Nothing in the Bible is random. Everything you see in the Bible is put there for a reason. It's our job to figure out what is the reason for that being in the Bible. And John puts this in his text for a very specific reason. He wants us to connect the Passover, the first Passover, and the exodus out of Egypt with this event that's going on in the New Testament. He's trying to draw a parallel, and he's trying to connect those two things. And so the Passover Jewish celebration is known as the Exodus. A thousand years before Jesus, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up a leader by the name of Moses who goes in and he leads them out into the wilderness and he leads them out of Egypt. God wants to see a connection, wants everybody to see a connection between 
where Jesus feeds the masses and the exodus that Moses had in Egypt. So let's get some details. The story of Moses takes place in the wilderness where they get hungry. And God provides something called manna, which is a heavenly food. There is a sea crossing where they come upon the Red Sea and it looks like they're trapped and the Egyptians are pursuing them from behind and it looks like they're going to perish. And all of a sudden, the, the sea parts and they cross on dry land. And then later in the wilderness, Moses goes up onto a mountain and he hears from God and he tells the people how he wants them to live. And all of this leads them to freedom from Egypt. So why is John trying to connect the exodus to this feeding of the 5,000? Well, let's take a look. In our story, Jesus takes his disciples to a place in the wilderness. He comes, it comes dinner time, and what does he do? He says, you, you provide for them, and Jesus multiplies the bread. It's a heavenly bread because Jesus does something with it, and we haven't gotten there yet, but at the end of our story, Jesus sends his disciples on ahead in a boat back to the place they were before they went over to Bethsaida. Later, he's going to meet them by walking on the water, this miraculous sea crossing of Jesus, and we are told that Jesus escaped to a mountain because he wanted to make, they wanted to make Jesus their military king, and so Jesus escapes to a mountain, and all of this is unfolding and the people would have been thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this looks, this is, he looks like Moses. I mean, this is, he's doing everything that Moses did. He's like Moses. They had their sights and their attention set on the Passover feast. It was that time of the season. They were thinking about that kind of stuff. And they're thinking, he's like Moses, which means he came to bring us freedom from Rome, which is why they wanted to make him king by force. He's like Moses. He's going to lead us into this exodus out of slavery to Rome. And John's saying, you got everything right except that last piece. You got it all right except that. That one is wrong. Jesus did not come to bring freedom from Rome. Jesus came to bring freedom from something else. And to answer that question, we have to follow Jesus back across the lake to the other side. And believe it or not, the crowd of people rush back around to the other side and they're waiting on him when he gets there. They want to keep the conversation going and they want to talk about manna. Why manna? Why do they want to have this conversation? Because they are making all these connections that Jesus is like Moses. And if he did that for, if Moses did that for them, then Jesus is going to do that for us. And so Jesus responds to them and he talks about manna. Look at John chapter 6, verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which everyone, anyone may eat and not die. What bread? The, bre the bread that, that, they, that Jesus just produced? No, that's not what he's talking about. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This whole scene, this whole Jesus multiplying the bread is a foreshadowing of Jesus, what he's going to do on the cross. This was all talking about what's coming on the cross, where he will give his life away, and Jesus said, I am the bread, and if you eat this, you will never die. Jesus didn't come to bring freedom from Rome. Jesus came to bring freedom from sin and death. And John's saying, look, John is, isn't like, Jesus isn't like Moses. It's a much bigger deal than that. He's much bigger than Moses. He's much bigger than Israel. This is bigger than what we need. This is, this is bigger than what we want. This is about what we need. We need deliverance from death itself. We need to be overcomers. This is about freedom from the sin that has us in bondage. So what do we learn about Jesus from this story? That he is the Savior, that he is the rescuer, that he gave his life to rescue you and me so that your relationship with God would be restored and you could look forward to an eternity with him. That you don't have to fear death because Jesus has the power to transform your life so that you would no longer have to live in slavery to bad habits that jack your life all to pieces. 
that Jesus wants to shepherd you, to lead you, to care for you, to provide for you, to protect you. That Jesus really is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do in your life. And the question is this, have you responded to Jesus as the good shepherd? Have you responded to him as the one who leads you, protects you, guides you? Are you checking in with him? Do you get your cues from him? Do you listen for his voice? When he turns left, do you turn left? When he turns right, do you turn right? Are you in lockstep with Jesus and have you made him the good shepherd in your life? Another way to say that is have you given your life to Christ? Now, some of us have given our life to Christ, but we're not living like it. And so this is a call to you to come back to the shepherd. But some of you have never made a decision to follow Jesus. And I don't know what you're waiting on. I don't know what you think that you're going to have to give up. Because you, what, what we're talking about is a Savior willing to die for you and take your old raggedy, sin-filthy clothes and in exchange give you brand new, perfect garments of righteousness. Why would you not want that? Forgiveness. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Righteous, right with God. What are you waiting for? If you've never given your life to Christ, that's something that you need to do. Let me pray for you, and uh, then Ross will be back out. Father, we give you thanks for, for the way that you provide for us. And Lord, your greatest provision for us was the living bread, the living water, Jesus he is the one who satisfies like no other, and he is the one who comes to be our good shepherd. And Lord, it's just, uh, it's way too often that we live our life as if we have no shepherd. And it's no wonder that we wander off into places and things that are difficult and hard and cause trouble for us. And so, Father, this morning I just, I lift up the people in this room who have come to be fed They've come to hear your word and they've come to hear your voice. And I pray, Father, that they have done that this morning as they have worshiped and given their time, given their effort, given their energy to you. Father, we love you. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus.